1: from PS Literary Agency, we'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual books with hook segment. After which, we'll go to today's guest.
0: Hello, podcast listeners! It's Carly here. I want to talk to you about Lefty Obey's writing podcast. Lefty is a writer just like you. She's working on her debut that she'll soon query in the hopes of getting an agent and a book deal. In her podcast, she shares her writing journey as well as tips, tricks, and mindset shifts that are helping her along the way, all to help and inspire you to pursue your own writing dreams. If that sounds interesting to you, go check out Lefty Obey's Writing Podcast. That's Lefty Obey's Writing Podcast.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today's a special one because we have two authors who are joining us who've submitted their work and we get to chat with them, which we love because we love the back and forth and the brainstorming. So we're going to start with our first author, who is Jennifer. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Will you read us your query
2: letter? Wonderful. Thank you very much, Bianca. Dear Carly, I'm a huge fan of the podcast and appreciate all you, Cece, and Bianca do to help writers understand the ins and outs of the publishing business. I'm thrilled to share my query for your evaluation. Please note that my memoir has begun with a timestamp since the very first draft. My mother disappeared when I was 13 years old. Given that my parents were in the middle of a contentious divorce, my psychologically abusive, alcoholic father immediately became the prime suspect. However, with no firm evidence, the police were powerless to remove me and my three sisters from his custody. It wouldn't take long before I came to believe I was living with the man who killed my mother, forcing me into a decade-long battle between denial and the urge to take justice into my own hands. After 16 years, a surprising break in the case, finally put my father on trial for her murder without a body, weapon, or eyewitness. Normal is What You Know, my 92,000-word memoir, will appeal to readers of survival and dysfunctional family memoirs, as well as to followers of true crime and criminal justice. It should interest fans of Deborah Harding's Dancing with the Octopus and David Crowe's The Pale-Faced Lie. The narrative will also resonate with people who have experienced destructive family dynamics. The universal message is one of the importance of justice in the healing process. I'm a member of the Independent Writers of Chicago, the National Association of Memoir Writers, and the Nonfiction Authors Association. With a marketing degree from the University of Notre Dame and an MBA from Seton Hall University, I also have the business background and networks to help promote my book. My 10,000 Twitter followers are primarily readers and writers, and I'm actively building a newsletter list via my author website. My husband and I live in the Kettle Moraine region of southeastern Wisconsin, where we consider the deer and wild turkeys our pets. We've become avid bird watchers and quite adept at relocating groundhogs. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Jennifer Lingroof.
1: Wonderful, Jennifer. Wow, that is super compelling. Wow, okay. Carly, I look forward to hearing what you have to
0: say about this query. All right, Jennifer. Holy shit. <laughs> like this is quite a life. Like holy man. I was, you know, obviously, you know, reading this and I usually read things right before we record the podcast, but I actually read this one yesterday. I tend to read things right before we record so they're fresh in my mind, but I read it yesterday and um I was like ready to email you and I was like, "No, just wait. We'll talk to Jennifer tomorrow. I don't need to disrupt her Sunday." But yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot of obviously main notes, as you can tell, I was very enthralled by it. I think there is a couple things that we could do to improve. But like, first of all, like, condolences to you like this was a very traumatic event that happened to you obviously many years ago but i obviously still want to share my condolences and just you know all the power to you for for turning that into a book something that can really help you heal probably through the writing process i'm sure this was a very emotional writing process bringing up a lot of old feelings and things that still stuck with you to today so i just wanted to share those thoughts but in terms of the actual query letter so we're fresh off the heels, for everybody listening, of our retreat. So we were we had our retreat all weekend, and it's been like less than 12 hours, and here we're recording, so the retreat is very much on my mind. So we were talking a lot about memoirs at the retreat, and so... Courtney, mom, did a talk on query letter writing and she does such an amazing talk. And so her and I disagree a little bit about query letters and whether themes belong in query letters and whether they don't. I personally don't think that that themes belong in query letters. She felt the opposite, which is totally fine. And so that's why when you had this line about the universal message is one of the importance of justice in the healing process. That's the line that I had to cut because I mean, I think it's a good note. And I think restorative justice is a type of kind of marketing angle, obviously, like Just Mercy and and all of these other books kind of talk about those similar themes. I also worked on a book called Dead Reckoning by Karis Craig that was about restorative justice. So it is like a very interesting hook for many reasons, but I'm just not convinced we need it necessarily in the query letter, just in like a one-liner like that, unless we have some comps that are more about the restorative justice element. So that was a line that I, I think we could probably cut. The last thing that I thought we could improve was in the, so you kind of have like two little author bio paragraphs, a bit more like the marketing one, the author bio, and then kind of the personal one. So you had, I also have the business background in networks to help promote my book. And I think networks was just a bit vague there. Is it like alumni connections? Is it like women in business connections? You know, exactly, maybe name it. How many people collectively, you know, my network is blank thousand people. You know what I mean? So just kind of like, let's get quantitative a little bit with that network comment. I think if we just add some numbers or, you know, had a bit more context for for what a network is, I think that would be great. But I think you wrote this in a really, really compelling way. Like it reads like a novel it reads like a film script it's so gripping and obviously the the reader and obviously the listener probably wants to know what's gonna what's gonna happen next so i I don't really have any main notes for you i think you did i think you did such a fabulous job and and i'm so glad that you that you sent it to us
1: thank you so much carly so jennifer we're gonna hand it across to you now see if you have any questions for carly or if you maybe want to expand on those networks
2: wonderful thank you very much carly uh, to answer your question, the reason I put in the line about the universal message is every time I've pitched this to an agent at a conference, their first question to me is, why should anyone care? What's the universal message that the reader is going to get? And that's why I put the line in there is because every agent's always asked me for that universal message.
0: Okay. I disagree because, like, again, this reads like a novel. This reads like true crime. Like, I don't think we need another hook here. I would... That surprises me a little bit, because to me, this query letter does its job. A query letter's job is always to hook the agent, get them to request pages. If anybody is at all interested in the story, which I mean, as I said, like, how could you not be? I really think that you would you would request more. So that's interesting to me that you haven't found anybody with just with a hook like this, because I, I think it's quite compelling. Okay.
2: I'm, I have no problem taking it out. And it, th- this is many years ago when I was pitching this. I've been going back and forth, working on the book on and off. Because like I said, it's emotionally draining to to work on the book at times. I, at one point, I was digging through tr- boxes at the courthouse and I just stumbled upon information that I wasn't ready to handle. And I just decided to stop writing and get married and plan my wedding instead of writing a book. So, <laughs> But my uh, other answer is, I wasn't sure if I should put my education in there primarily because it does, I think the University of Notre Dame's alumni magazine goes out to 175,000 people. So should I mention, and I will be in there, you know, when, when the book comes out, they do have a section for books by alumni type of things. So I will actually have, that'll be a, a marketing aspect. My other question is, I have started a book proposal because some people, because this does read like fiction, I wrote it to read like fiction. Some people say memoir, as long as it writes reads like a novel, you don't need a book proposal, as long as you've written the whole thing. Other people say memoirs, nonfiction, you have to have a book proposal. What's your call on that?
0: All right. Yeah. So just going back to the Notre Dame alumni stuff. So yes, I always talk to authors about alumni connections, because I think those are such strong connections and all universities and colleges love to celebrate. So yeah, I would definitely mention the number of the distribution or circulation of the magazine, and just say, find a kind of a short way to say it. But like, Notre Dame always supports authors. You know what I mean? They're they're alumni authors and I'm guaranteed a spot in their circulation of 175,000. You know, just find a short way to say that. But yes, I would definitely put that in. So coming back to the proposal bit. So if I was to be pitching this, So say you've got an agent, right? And say the agent is doing the pitching. So if I was to be pitching this to a publisher, I would include a proposal because I think we need to expand on our comp titles. We need to include chapter summaries. We need to kind of build out a bit more of the marketing and publicity and just kind of explain, again, if this was me, I'd be building out like your primary audience, your secondary audience and your tertiary audience, right? So we are covering, for examples of some of these audiences, I would say probably your main audience would probably be true crime. True crime listeners of podcasts, true crime fanatics, that's a very viable market. Your secondary market might be kind of more like family drama, readers of family drama, that type of thing. Tertiary audience, and you can kind of, again, I haven't read the manuscript, so I don't know all the kind of subplots and whatnot, but maybe there's like a, a tertiary audience there. So I'd be like building out that part of the proposal. All of this to say, I don't know how far you as the author need to be going down the proposal route yourself, because if you have written the entire manuscript, it does speak for itself. I would have chapter summaries or a synopsis of the whole project available you know, upon request when you're sending it out. And if an agent does ask for a proposal, you know, you can say you're working on it or you can, again, as I said, have it ready to go. But in terms of what's in the proposal, I think just it can be a bit truncated, as I said, because you have the, the actual full manuscript.
2: So you would suggest that I mention, should I mention that I have a drafted book proposal in my career letter or should I just wait until someone would contact me about the query.
0: So one of the things that's absent from your query letter that I do suggest people have is a call to action. So you don't have a call to action at the end. You just say, you know, I live here. Thank you for your time and consideration. You don't say, can I send you my manuscript? That is something that I I encourage a lot of people to have. So if you do have a proposal and a manuscript, you could say, can I send you my completed manuscript and my proposal. Do you know what I mean? Like, so in that call to action, you can use that wording to frame like what you have available to share. So that's probably something I would add, but Honestly, I mean, I would be clicking reply, get me the manuscript as quickly as possible. Like, (laughs) I don't know if you need a call to action because I honestly think it's quite strong. But to everybody listening, a call to action is always nice because it makes the agent want to do something at the end of the query.
1: Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Jennifer, do you have anything more before we ask you to give our listeners an overview of what's in these opening pages?
2: Uh, Do you think those comps are strong enough? I used to have ones that were fact of the body. But that's now five years old. So these were more current comps. And they also had the um, memoir writer as a little girl in the apartment when her mother is murdered. So it's very similar. But once again, it, I don't know if it sold as well. It was after the eclipse. And it's also five years old now, I think.
0: That's a good question. I thought these comps were good. I didn't recognize them, you know, just by sight, so I did look them up. But when I looked them up, I thought they were really strong. But that's why, you know, a proposal is great, right? Because in a proposal, you could have your five comps and build out that comp title section in a proposal. So those ones that are maybe more five years old could totally be in the comp section of your actual proposal.
2: I also use in my book proposal, I use uh, the Scott Toreau's latest book because there are three trials in this book. It's very backloaded in terms of the excitement of the trials, because that's just how it worked. But there are three trials, so that's why I put in a fiction kind of lawyery book in the book proposal, but I didn't think it fit here.
0: I would agree with that.
1: Okay, Jennifer, will you give our listeners an indication of what was in those opening pages, and then we'll hear Carly's take on them.
2: Certainly. The chapter begins with a time and location stamp of Palatine, Illinois, October 25th, 1977. I'm surprised to come home from school to find the door locked and a sorry we missed you note from the carpet company on the doorknob. I head to my neighbor's and I stay there till my sister gets home with a key. While chatting with my neighbor, it's revealed that my parents are going through a contentious divorce. And my mother has started a real estate career, and it's suggested she might be out showing a house. I explain why we call my, our parents mommy and daddy at our age, because I do refer to my parents as mommy and daddy throughout the book. When my sister gets home, we discover the kitchen not cleaned up from that morning. My sister calls around, and no one knows where our mother might be. We know she didn't forget the carpet layers were coming because her morning errand said she didn't stay for coffee to get home for them. My father calls to say he'll be home late. And he's not concerned that my mother isn't home. As it gets later, we get more worried. And my neighbor calls in to check on us and tells us if she's not home, it's because she can't get home. Call the police. So we do.
0: Great, Jennifer. Thank you. Okay, Carly, what was your take? This is just another example of how it absolutely reads like fiction. And I really do think you're starting in the right place. I imagine this just generally moves chronologically through the course of the manuscript. I'm assuming there will be some jumps in time at some point, but like generally we're going to follow this chronologically. So, yeah, we're starting at a a very intense moment. You're also peppering us with, you know, different details of your family life and your siblings. So, we are getting enough kind of richness there. I really I mean I know this is this is real life but so you know didn't always have a choice here but I liked that this this little thing about the carpet because it's so domestic but such a domestic task right it's like oh you know a mom worrying about the carpet and domestic violence and all of this stuff right and it's so rounded and that domestic and I think that just really made the the setting so rich here and even on the in the first On the first page at the start of the third paragraph, you say, a sorry, we missed you note from the carpet company dangled from the door handle. And at the time, I didn't know that the carpet kind of bit was going to be a thread through these pages. But I made a note, such a rich little addition there in terms of like what you remember from that moment, right? And as a child in a traumatic moment, as a young teen in this traumatic moment, like the things that your memory that your memory stored for, for keeping. The only thing I would move in terms of organization is so the whole like mommy and daddy thing, right? So you're 13, it is jarring, but in a way that you get used to really fast, which is obviously why you, you mentioned this. So I would actually, so you say on uh, the second page, you say you get into the chapter. So at 13, it might seem too old to refer to my mother as mommy, et cetera, et cetera. So, but you actually You say that before you use the word mommy. So I would actually use the word mommy like in the dialogue or whatever and then explain it because if you explain it too early, I'm like, why do I need to know this information? It just feels like it was just in the wrong place. But you only have to move it down farther in the page because I assume you're just doing it to like preempt the reader from having that question. But I actually would like to make the question in my mind as a reader. And then you answer it as the author, knowing that I'm going to ask that right after. So I would just flip flop that. It's not a huge move. Honestly, it's um, it's really great. It's super interesting. It's unique. It's memorable. You know, it really it sat with me since yesterday, as I said, since I've read it. And even in five pages, we're at the moment of like, where's my mother to call the police in five pages. And so I when I was training to be an agent, I worked at an agency that was very like crime and thrillers, right? That was like pretty much all we worked on at the Darley Anderson agency. And their rule over there was something has to happen every five pages. And so really, it's like by five pages, like we're calling the police, like you're right on pace with like crime and thriller pacing here. So it is very gripping. It really, it really intrigues us. And I don't really have any other notes. I mean, because I don't obviously know where the rest of the book is going. I'd love to hear whatever your questions are for me. But I'd also like to hear kind of how the book unfolds. And you don't do any spoilers, but I'd like to know kind of how that pacing kind of builds out through the rest of the book. And if everything is as like gripping and page turning as this is.
1: Thank you, Carly. Before we go back to Jennifer, on behalf of all authors, I would like to say that we have no problem with you emailing us on Sundays. In fact, to hear from you agents at any time, any time at all is thrilling for us. So in the future,
2: always, always reach out. Okay, Jennifer, we will
1: now go back to you.
2: I wholeheartedly agree. I was out of town, but I would have gotten the email. In reference to the mommy, I've always gone back and forth on where to put it. I do mention on page one, I use her name once. On the third paragraph, I say that um, mommy had been so engrossed in the project that I'd called upstairs to say goodbye instead of getting my customary goodbye kiss. So that's why I put it as soon as I did, because I had mentioned it on page one and I didn't want people to think, hey, you're 13. Why are you calling her mommy? So but I could put it after the fact that they were divorcing as well. My other questions well, actually in terms of the rest of the book, like I said, the end is very novel t- crime because there's all the trials. There's a lot of back and forth. I do some flashbacks to bring my mother in as a character, to have the reader miss my mother along with me. I've known, I think you've said that grief is a really hard emotion and it's the lack of grief that is a through line in my book because we don't, she's never dead. She's always missing. And so we don't get the grieving process where my dad pretty much tells us she's left us. We don't talk about her. So we're forbidden from talking amongst ourselves, even about our mother and where she might be. So it's it's about back and forth of my learning through newspaper articles and the the police investigation that I eventually come to believe he killed her. And then my emotional trauma of trying not to kill him, kill him and myself and or just run away or be in denial that she can't be gone. He couldn't have killed her because she can't be gone. Tug of war. And it does jump. I mean, there's huge years that I go to college and there's a little back and forth. Then I leave the home. And then there's a big gap between because I was I finally left home at 22, I think. And was that's a lot of the not Stockholm syndrome. But, you know, why didn't I leave right when I turned 18? You know, why did I come home after college and live with him again? There's that a lot of emotional struggling there. And then when there's the surprising break in the case, I've already moved out of state. We've all cut all ties with him. I don't know if I put it in the distinct years, but there's a break in the case when I'm twenty eight and the case doesn't go to trial to thirty because of a lot of other stuff going on. So the book takes place between be being thirteen and thirty two probably. But there's a lot of gaps in there of time.
0: Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. It's kind of what I imagine. I'm I have this mental battle right now of like whether I want you to tell me the ending and I'm almost like, oh, no, I should just have you send me the manuscript so I can read it for myself. And the listeners probably don't want to be spoiled either. So you've got me on my toes, Jennifer. I think I I think I think know what I'm reading tonight. <laughs> Amazing. I love it. I love it when we have
1: one of the agents on the show requesting pages. And just for our listeners out there, please go to theshitaboutwriting.com. Look at the good news page. We have shared good news from someone who was on Books with Hooks pitched their stuff as we helped them work through it. And another agent was listening to the episode and requested pages based on that. So you, you never quite know who who's going to be listening and, and where that will go. Okay, Jennifer, back to you. We've got four more minutes. If
2: you'd like to ask Carly any questions. I will get that manuscript off to you. Just an FYI, I changed my sister's names and I plan on changing them again in the future because I don't think, right now I'm using all their middle names just to keep them straight in my head, but I don't think they're the strongest names possible. So if you have an issue with sisters' names, that'll be changing. (laughs) Let's see what else I had. Should I mention being a freelance writer in my query? I was, I'm not, no longer, I stopped freelance writing to work on the book. But at one point I'd said I was a former freelance writer and my husband, who's also a writer, said, I don't think that's necessary to mention since you're not doing it anymore.
0: I wouldn't mention it. I think it's pretty strong as it is, right? Like you have a marketing degree. And I think like in this day and age of like being an author, that marketing degree is pretty weighty. So I would would keep it as is. Unless there's like articles you want to link to or something like that that you're especially proud of, you could say like – find a way just to like hyperlink a couple things in there, or just say, visit my website for some of my freelance writing or something like that. Like there is a way to tie it in. But I think that marketing degree is, uh, unfortunately, today's day and age is uh, is more useful sometimes than freelance writing.
2: One final question, uh, edit wise, that I asked just to maybe help other writers out there in their editing process. On the first page, when I mentioned I rang the doorbell and Peter and Polly are Be- beagle coonhound mixes charged to the dark barking. I've had some people suggest that I should take out all of that and just say the dogs charged to the door, not even to mention names or their breed. I could see taking the names out, but I think the breeds are important to show that number one, we had mutts and not purebreds. But to me, mentally, as a reader, there's a big difference between a Doberman coming to the door or a Chihuahua. What do you think?
0: So I I really liked that. And actually, that kind of piqued my interest because this is essentially like a, a true crime. I was like, were the dogs there for the murder? Basically. Like I was like, Oh, they have dogs. That's interesting. Oh, I wonder like if they, if the dogs bit the guy or whatever that did it, you know, like I started spinning out being like, Oh, the dogs were there. That's interesting. So I really liked that the dogs were mentioned. If anything, I would cut the names and keep the breed. Like you said, that was my feeling. I, I think it was more important. to They
2: all just, the two other comments I got just say, just say dogs. Like to me, that's a, big variation of what kind of dogs we might have had and i also kind of puts us right in the middle class with you know our mutts versus having a purebred dog but i would definitely take the names out
1: okay jennifer thank you so so much for joining us i hope you're going to get those pages to carly and we're keeping everything crossed for you i know there's a ton of listeners right now who are cheering you on and and hoping for the best so thank you so much for joining us
2: thanks very much for having me and i'll get those pages to you carly thank you so much
1: Right. So that was it from Jennifer. We now move on to our second author, who is David. David, welcome to the show. Will you read us your query letter?
3: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And here we go. So, dear Bianca, Cece, and Carly, I'm an avid listener of the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast. You've accompanied my daughters and I on countless strolls around our neighborhood. And I've even had the pleasure of interviewing Bianca twice for the Writerly Lifestyle interview series, where she is a favorite guest among my listeners. I am seeking representation for my 89,000-word thriller, What We Leave Behind. It combines the morally ambiguous characters of Mary Kubica's local woman missing with the fast-paced timeline of Riley Sager's Survive the Night. When an aspiring artist named Chelsea Ray disappears, Mercy and George must each scramble separately to hide their connections to the case. However, the contents of Chelsea's missing sketchbook threaten to expose the truth. As the secretary for a lucrative law firm, Mercy is outside her depth when she's forced to infiltrate an underground club sneak into Chelsea's bedroom, and even resort to blackmail in pursuit of the wayward sketchbook. The longer her search goes on, the deeper she's drawn into the shadowy and surreal world of the Ray family. By the time she realizes she isn't meant to survive the search, it might be too late. Meanwhile, George, a formerly prominent artist-turned-art-professor, searches for the same sketchbook by piecing together clues Chelsea left behind within her art. He knows he needs to beat Mercy to the sketchbook if he wants to keep his job... But he's being followed by someone who would do anything to keep it out of his hands. I founded WriterlyLifestyle.com, a website, podcast, and YouTube channel designed to help writers develop their craft. The Critique Match Fiction 5 contest named me a finalist in the thriller category. My previous publications include New Pop Lit, Literally Fiction, and more. I'm a proud member of International Thriller Writers' and Sisters in crime. Thank you for all that you do to help writers. David Gwynn.
1: Right. Thank you so much for that, David. Cece, why don't you tell us what you thought of that query letter? Before I do, I'm wondering, since we do have David
4: on with us, if I could ask a question. David, where are you in the querying process?
3: I just started about two weeks ago, so very early on.
4: (laughs) I am very happy to hear that because I personally think you're framing this query letter in a way that's not doing your story any... It's just not the best way to frame it. And if you're early on in the querying process, and obviously if my notes resonate with you, it'll be good news. So, what do we have in terms of the plot paragraph? We have when an aspiring artist, Chelsea Ray, disappears, Mercy and George must each scramble separately. So, I don't really understand how their stories come together immediately to hide their connections. What connections? I have no idea. And then the contents of a notebook is the big antagonistic force. See, to me, that's framing the the incorrect thing because the notebook is super passive. It's just this object that's sitting there, right? Like that they all have to scramble to find, which is totally fine as a plot point, but I wouldn't use it as the big propulsive antagonistic force. And also it's focusing more on Chelsea in a way that by the way is kind of burying the lead because later on in the letter we find out that she's from, I think a prominent family, a family with connections, which might mean that there will be more manpower behind her search. So I would just reframe this completely. You can keep one line in terms of the hook in the very first paragraph that the fact that this is about a young woman's disappearance or the connection that two people have with a young woman's disappearance, but I would just reframe the paragraphs, the plot paragraphs to just be way more about Mercy and George and just have more specificity in terms of what their connection to Chelsea is. And this can be the on-surface, like the connection, it doesn't have to be the reveal. What they do to to find whatever happened to her, not just the notebook, and what exactly is up against them with a little bit more specificity. So for example, infiltrate an underground club, sneak into Chelsea's bedroom. First of all, I thought that the bedroom was inside the club the first time I read that. So I had to read that over again, which is is fine because that's just a small thing. But I don't think that those are the things that you have to highlight. Also, when you say shadowy and surreal world of the Ray family, that's super vague. I don't know what that means. Are they like a... have succession on my mind because of our retreat are they like a Rupert Murdoch sort of family like what what does that mean and by the time she realizes she isn't meant to survive the search it might be too late I I have very very little understanding of what is actually happening in the story beyond the fact that Mercy and George need to find the notebook or else bad things are going to happen to them and that is way too vague I need specificity. The biggest note is I don't get how they're connected to Chelsea. And I think we have to right from the get go, right from the query letter. Again, okay to be the surface reason, not the deep reason. And I also think that I know that George is aware about mercy, but is mercy aware of George? So that also needs to be clarified. I will stop talking now so you can ask me questions.
3: Yeah, I I had a really tough time with this query letter. and I've done a few different versions because their connection is complex, at least in, in I'm having a hard time explaining it um, between Mercy and George. They have, they're effectively co-parenting and they live together because it's New York city and they have, they're not really into each other. So it's like, I struggled to have that. I struggled to figure out a way to get that into the query letter in a really efficient way. So that's, that's kind of the deal is that George and Chelsea know each other. Uh, he's her art professor, basically an in-grad school art professor. And Mercy knows that they had or believes they had a relationship or something else going on, which is what led to, in the opening pages there, uh, asking her boss for help. And then when she goes missing, that's the kind of the big question is what happened to her and and who has something to do with it? And And then both seem, both Mercy and George seem like they are related to or, or um, invested in her either missing or staying missing or being found, if that makes any sense.
4: Just so we're super clear, you're telling me that George and Mercy live together, like in a relationship situation, they co-parent. George was Chelsea's art professor. Mercy thinks they were having an affair, meaning George and Chelsea. This is what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, you totally buried all the leaves. <laughs> Like This is very juicy. This reminds me, what is the name of the book that was adapted with the Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant? Um, they changed the title for the TV show. The Undoing?
0: Show. Was it yes, the-
4: yes, yes. This reminds me of The Undoing. You have got to reframe this query letter, like the whole thing. Like the whole thing. Yes, because we need to know that, first of all, that Mercy and George are together. I don't know this based on the query letter. I have no idea scramble separately to hide their connections i thought that you know mercy was living in brooklyn and george was living in i don't know chelsea not chelsea that's the name of the character somewhere else (laughs) um but yeah i had no idea. see the fact that mercy suspected that george had an affair is juicy you must include that please i am begging you the fact that george was chelsea's professor yes you must include that do they ever become suspects Because if they do, you also must include that, you know, as their search continues, the police, they start becoming suspicious or they're, I don't know, something like I I don't know enough about your story, but I know that it's juicy. And yeah, please, please reframe. Will you reframe for me?
3: (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like I I have a lot of Work to do. And like I said, I've gone through a couple different versions of it. And some, when I was trying to explain the connections, it just felt like it was too complex, too confusing for a query letter in a query letter format. And so I tried to just boil it down to just the inciting incident of her disappearing. But it seems like maybe that wasn't the best idea.
4: It's not complex at all. He was her art professor. She thought her husband was having an affair with him. It's the simplest thing in the world. What's complex is this, because this, I'm like, okay, there's these two people. I thought they barely knew each other. I actually knew that George was aware of Mercy's existence, but not the other way around. This person disappears. I have no idea how they know them. No clue. Nothing. Nothing. And I know that, like you mentioned, formerly prominent artist turned art professor. So I did imagine. But I thought to myself, no, because if George were her professor, he would have told me. Or her mentor, he would have told me. So it's not complex at all, actually. It's the simplest thing in the world. It is a a classic trope. It's and by that I mean it as a good thing. The way it's written now, it feels like it's a story about a missing notebook and two people who are satellites in total opposite locations trying to find a notebook. Which, come on, that's not your story, right? Like the the whole suspects of infidelity thing would be enough for me to be like, yes, please let me read this because that's juicy. It's, it's everything that's, it's like a police procedural mixed
1: with like a love affair, which is very interesting.
3: Great. Thank you so much.
1: Do you have any other questions for CC David before we discuss what's in your opening pages?
3: No, I, I don't think so. I think that at least heads me in, in the right direction. No, I, I think that's, that's it.
1: CC, if David revised his query and sent it on, would you be able to take a look and give him some advice on it?
4: Absolutely. I am now so in like just so curious and so interested. But I'm only curious and interested because of what you said. Reading your query letter, I'm like, hmm, there's a no, Noga. Cool, cool. Not for me. What you told me about your story, I'm like, this is like the undoing. I'm obsessed with the undoing. So, yes, absolutely. Please send it.
1: Awesome, Cece. Thank you. And I I feel for you, David, because I suck at query letters, man. I suck so badly, which is why I was so glad with my last one. Cece represented me without knowing about a book because if I had to try and tell her what the book was about, we would have had problems. Okay. So, David, could you tell us what's in those opening pages?
3: Sure. So, the story opens at sunset in a lawyer's office in a New York City high-rise. Our point-of-view character, Mercy, is pacing outside her boss's office door, planning on asking for a raise. Mercy has been repeating this mantra to herself all day, which is, I didn't talk to her, I never saw her, and she's hoping it sounds believable. She's thinking that her boss, Lara, a prominent and successful lawyer, might be able to figure out what Mercy did if she questions Mercy. Basically, she knows that Lara will catch on to the lies, And so despite Mercy's reservations about asking for the raise, she needs to do it because without the extra money, she won't be able to make her payments for next month, which include rent and medical bills for her child. So she goes in and Laura is on the phone. Laura makes Mercy move a piece on a chessboard, which everyone who enters Laura's office has to do. Mercy is largely annoyed by this, doesn't see the point, moves upon, and then briefly imagines what her life would have been like had she gone to law school like she'd originally planned. After Laura gets off the phone, she chides Mercy for her chess move and really kind of her larger strategy, saying that a chess move can tell a lot about a person. Mercy starts to ask for the raise, but Laura turns the tables and hijacks the conversation. She wants to talk about the things she helped Mercy do that she doesn't even want to explicitly say out loud. This makes Mercy uncomfortable and she tries to leave, but Laura is persistent and tells Mercy, quote, the girl is missing. Mercy gets even more flustered, and even though it's clear she knows who Lara is talking about, she asks, what girl? And that's where these pages end.
1: Wonderful, David. Thank you. Okay, Cece, what was your take on them?
4: Fun fact about my feedback style. The more I like something, the more notes I have, which might seem that that makes no sense, right? Because if I like it, it's perfect, but actually... Something that's really well written and really fleshed out. I have more questions and sometimes I have more suggestions and sometimes I just want to clock my reaction because I'm just really engaged. So do you have the file open in front of you? Okay, you're saying yes with your head. Amazing. Yes. So we will I will just very briefly go through the main notes, but when you get my my, my annotate file, you'll see it more. I really like the way you began it. I really like the whole I didn't talk to her. I never saw her her reciting that. It immediately made me think, okay, if she's practicing for something, then There's something really big at stake here, right? Because we don't practice lines in front of the mirror or I don't even think she's in front of the mirror, but we don't do that unless we're really nervous about something. I really, really like the fact that she walked into Lara's office with a goal. I thought that was excellent. The goal was clear. You used interiority in the way that you're supposed to, which is to time travel. We know what's going on in her life, like the stuff in her hospital and her obligations and her bills. We know about her future, including the future that never was, which was the fact that she wants to be a lawyer or wanted to be a lawyer. And that was never possible. We know that something happened in the past with with the girl, right? We don't know exactly what, but the interiority is very believable. Had a very random question, which was, are you suggesting that the door to the law firm is made of glass? Because if so, typically they're not just because of like privilege. So- I suppose it's possible with a modern law firm and then they just take meetings in conference rooms, but it's just a mo- very minor thing that that threw me off. When she walks into the office, I think that one thing that's missing is her to notice Lara's face. Like right now we have, I sighed audibly and she shot me a glance. I smiled through an embarrassed blush, remembering why I was here. She just gestures for her to come in. I think she would try to figure out her expression. Like if you're walking into your boss's office hoping to get a raise, even if you do have an ace up your sleeve, which she does or believes she does, which is great. You're still going to be like, is this person in a good mood? They're in a bad mood. Like what? So just two, three words on that. I love the fact that she's picturing herself in her office, like answering the phone. Love that. So I'm right now on page three. In terms of the description. I thought, and I did highlight this for you, it's the paragraphs that start with at this time of the year and the paragraph that starts with in the failing sunlight. They're they're one right after the other. All the descriptions are not firmly grounded in her point of view. So for example, if I'm describing fall, I'm excited because it's my favorite season. I love fall. I don't mind the fact that it's cold. I love the cold. But someone who's more of a summer person would perhaps be lamenting the end of summer. So this is just like a small example. But I think it's important to just ground that description in her interiority. And you can also trim it. There was quite a bit of description here and it's really well written, but you just don't need all of this. When she says, Lara says, my secretary is here. Did that sting her? Or was she proud? Like what, given that she wanted to be where, I don't know where she is in her interiority in terms of like, she didn't even use her name, right? Like I wanted a, I wanted to know. Okay. If you don't want to tell me right now, but it's just something that thought that I thought of. I love the whole chess thing. Like it's such, and I also love what you did with it. Like the whole, only she got to see the whole game. And that was absolutely great. I don't recommend that you give us her strategy before Lara calls her on it, just because that way it's it's repetitive. Let Lara call her on it. And then she can be like, yeah, I do that. I, you know, this, this is true. And I also like the fact that she's trying to spin it into the whole team player thing. So I really, really like that too. As you can see, I really like so many things and I just have like questions. There's a part where you say, where Lara says, it's about the other thing I helped you do, you know, earlier this week. And she's wondering, well, why is she speaking in code? And then she sees the interns outside and then you have, they were the reason for her code. You don't need that, you can strike that line just because the reader gets it. The reader's smart, I promise. The one thing, as I was saying, as you can see, I really like this. The one thing I think you need is, and I did highlight in pink for you, all the times that you mentioned the, the secret, the carrot you're dangling to the reader going, there's a secret. It's something that they did. It's something that, you know, in the protagonist's opinion, her boss now kind of owes her because of that. It's the thing that she's reciting the lines for. I do think that whenever you mention it, you have to up it with a clue. So for example, on page six she's saying, I can't sit down. I really can't, right? Like Lara's insisting and she's just being like, no, I have to go. All of a sudden she has to go. I need details about why she doesn't want to have that conversation beyond what I already know. I know that she's been practicing lines. I know she's nervous. I like that. That's a good emotional entryway into the story. But because of the number of times that we are getting a reference to something that we have absolutely no idea what that is, Each time you mention something, you have to give me another clue. So for example, just just a silly example that I'm sure will not fit your story. She could think to herself, I flattened my shirt and took a deep shaky breath. I didn't want to stay. I was afraid of what she might find out about me, about the girl. And most importantly, about the last 24 hours. So that's that's great, right? I really can't. I checked my watch knowing I'd need to get out. What if you gave us a visual? What if you gave us a visual that would necessarily be misdirection? So for example... I can't think of blood right now, or, 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 or the something about blood that would infiltrate her head, like an invasive thought, and she would just be trying to essentially squash it out. And we don't know if that blood is hospital blood, because we know she has someone in the hospital, or we don't know if that blood has to do with the girl's disappearance. But it would necessarily have to be something that later on, as I piece it together, I was actually misdirected in an intelligent way. I wanted a visual. I didn't just want her thinking about this in a vague way. Because it's okay for her to think about it in a vague way as she's practicing the line. And then later on, as she goes into the office to ask for a raise. But by the third time, I'm going, no, come on. <laughs> one more clue, just one visual, whether that's blood or a knife. It doesn't have to be anything like that. It can be something just that's just intriguing enough and contrasty enough to keep me curious. And yeah, and I guess that's my, that's my only big picture note because I, I really wanted another clue.
1: Thank you so much, Cece. Okay, David, we're handing it across to you now, either to give some answers or to ask some of your own questions.
3: Yeah, great. Thank you so much. I I really feel like that gives me a a sense of how people are reading the opening, which is really helpful. So thank you so much for that. I I did have a question that it's funny. And as I was kind of creating the synopsis for this first five pages, and and anyone who's listening, I, I urge you to do this because it was, I I got a little bit nervous going through it because she doesn't enter the office until like the second page. And I was wondering what you thought about that. If there was enough lead time in those, in that first page, or should I try to get her into the office earlier? What were your kind of thoughts there?
4: If you can get her into the office earlier, great. Just because it does make it a little bit more action-y. It didn't frustrate me. So it's not like it's a problem. This just might be you making this even tighter. I do have notes on cutting things. So you might actually be able to accomplish that just by cutting. Just remember that even though it's true that she's not in the office by second page or however, whatever, however many pages, because I've forgotten by now, you did keep us hooked on, on why she was there. because you gave her a goal. This is the most important thing for anyone. You gave her a goal, which is to ask for the raise. You gave her power imbalance because she has to go up against her boss, right? And you made it very, very clear that there's reasons below the surface, beneath the surface, right? It's not just, I want more money. She has stakes. She has a secret. So truly the setup is masterful. It's working really well. You can do it, but I wouldn't worry about it too much.
3: Okay, great. I I think that's it. I'm really looking forward to, to seeing what you made note of because i'm I'm excited to to dive back in and and get some work on this done, so thank you very much for taking the time to do that
4: and I'm super curious to read, so I look forward to seeing this whenever it's it's ready if if you are at all of course interested in because I really really like it it's the concept is great oh and a very small note about the query letter that I didn't get to I wouldn't write lucrative law firm if you even keep the law firm angle now that you're going to reframe it just because it doesn't sound like Something that people would say you could if you want to say that it's a prestigious old world law firm, you can just say white shoe
1: law firm. But it's a very
4: minor thing. Probably you won't even keep
3: law firm there. Great. Thank you so much.
1: Right. So that brings us to the end of today's Books with Hooks. Remember, for our monthly Kofi supporters, you will have access to both of the query letters to see Carly and Cece's notes. And for those of you who are once-off supporters, you'll have access to one of them. Right. Thank you so much, Jennifer and David, for joining us. Let's go to today's guest.
0: rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today.
5: Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6th at 8pm via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is
1: I've got a course coming up on the 25th of October called How to Avoid the 10 Biggest Mistakes That Good Writers Make That Stop Them From Getting Published. Now, writing is unfortunately one of the endeavors in which working hard doesn't guarantee success. You could spend hours daily at the keyboard, but that doesn't mean you're going to be published. Even if you write beautiful sentences and have a great story idea, you still might struggle to land an agent. What am I doing wrong is a question you might be asking yourself more and more. In this three-hour virtual course, we'll look at how to avoid the 10 biggest mistakes that good writers make that stop them from landing an agent and getting published. Go to my website at biancamaray.com, look under the courses tab, and you can book for it there. Today's guest is a marketing manager for the Penguin Publishing Group at Penguin Random House. She grew up outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and currently lives in New York City. It's my pleasure to welcome Jordan Aronson. Jordan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bianca. So happy to be here and so happy to be chatting with you. Yes, it feels like a full circle moment for us. So for our listeners, I worked with Jordan at Penguin Random House when my first two novels came out. That's when I met her and absolutely adored her. And it's wonderful to get to have her on the show now. And these are the things that authors need to be aware of that when their books, when their books sell, not if putting it out there for all of you. When your books sell, it takes a huge team to bring your book out into the world in like the 18 to 24 months that it takes to bring a book out after you've done all your work and your agent has done all of your work. So Jordan, will you give our listeners an overview of what a marketing manager does? Absolutely.
6: Absolutely. So my job looks a little different than the average marketing manager and that's because I work for a corporate team where I kind of oversee a lot of things that go on across multiple imprints. But if you were to be a marketing manager at an imprint as a title marketer working on different books leading up to their publication days, you get to help out with social media plans, you get to help out with promotion plans, you get to figure out an advertising budget, you get to work directly with the authors to figure out the best way and the best audiences to Promote your book to. So obviously, in any given month or year, you're going to be working on a wide selection of titles, which keeps it really interesting. Sometimes you might be working on a nonfiction title. Sometimes you might be working on a romance. Sometimes you might be working on a thriller. It all depends. But obviously, depending on the type of book, you very much change the marketing techniques that you go in for. A romance audience looks very different than a thriller audience. So Being a marketing manager means that you kind of get to think about those things, think about best targeting practices, and then figure out the best way to
1: put the book out for readers to find. Amazing. And something that surprised me when I first published was I didn't realize how much marketing and PR had a say in terms of which books get bought? So my idea at the time was: your agent sends it to an editor. The editor falls in love with it, and the editor's like, hell yes, we take in this book. Boom, we're off to the races. And then what shocked me a few times is we would hear back from editors with my debut novel. I really loved it. I'm going to the editorial committee with it to try and get everyone to be on board. And they would come back and say, I'm sorry, I'm so disappointed. I couldn't get buy-in from everyone else. So why does that happen? And can you explain to us what that process looks like?
6: Absolutely. So obviously, anytime that an editor is buying a book, there are a lot of people that go into that process. Because in addition to a book being really, really beautiful and great and, you know, full of wonderful writing, we want to make sure that the other folks who will be working on that book see a potential market for that book, to make sure that there are going to be media outlets that are going to pick up that book, to make sure there are going to be event spaces that want to host that author, to make sure that if we do advertising and put money behind this book, that it's going to sell and that there is an audience that is out there for that book specifically. So generally speaking, if an editor gets in a book that they really like and they're going to make an investment on that book, it's hard to make that call just from one single person. If you think about the larger company, there are lots of editors with lots of different preferences and lots of different styles of writing. So once they find a book they really like, it's always good to have a few other people check in, read it, and make sure that they see that same potential as well. And in any given imprint, it's kind of a natural fit. If you're going to have a marketer and a publicist who will be working on that book, they might take a peek too and be like, yes, I see the potential here. This book should absolutely be published. Let's take a chance on it. Or we might need to make some changes. This might not resonate the way that we need to. Current state of affairs, politics sometimes come into play, like, wow, this book comments on something that might not fit into the moment and we might not be able to purchase that right now. It doesn't make sense in the space. That's kind of where those second reads come in just to kind of validate the inclination that the editor has or to be like, actually, we might need to reevaluate buying this book.
1: Yeah, that's and that's fascinating. So. On the podcast, we're always saying to people, you need strong comp titles and they need to be recent comp titles because it's so important that an agent and an editor is able to imagine where this book is going to fit on the bookshelf, who the target market's going to be, etc. So how important is that for you guys at the acquisition stage?
6: That is just as important for us. Almost every time that an editor gets a book in on submission and they decide that they want to try and buy it, the comp titles are the number one thing that most people look at. Of course, budget too is very important to make sure that we are projecting the correct amount of advance that we might be paying an author. But if you have comp titles that are performing really well, that are actually really related to the book, that are recent, that can really boost a team to decide to make a purchase.
1: Yeah, so for our listeners, again, that's why we're saying recent comps as opposed to comps from 20 years ago, because a book that sold really well 20 years ago might be problematic in this day and age. There might be issues with it, it may not have the same readership as it would have had all that time ago. So let's talk advances, Jordan. So I know that that's up to each editor and it depends on the book. Like, what are the factors that go into deciding on what kind of advance is going to be offered for that author? Do they look at, is it a debut author? Is it an established author? Have they maybe got a ton of publicity recently through something that went viral? Like, what are the factors that are considered here? And I know something that our listeners are going to ask is how important is author platform? Because we keep getting this, an author needs a platform, and we're like, for the love of dog, man, We're just wanting to write books. We don't have time for social media. What is it with you people and your platforms? So can you take us through that? Absolutely. So
6: that is a very great question and a very common question. All the factors that you named very much go into how much an advance payment might be. Competitiveness is honestly the biggest thing. If many, many different publishers are very interested in buying a book, that's going to lift the amount of money that people are going to offer for said book because you're competing against a lot of people and that kind of increases the value, of course. But where does that value come from? from big author platforms, from authors who maybe aren't published as novelists or have not written books before, but have written and gone viral in some other capacity. Of course, advance payments are higher when authors have been published and been successful in the past. All of those factors very much go into it. But as you mentioned platforms, especially in this day and age, are so, so important. I know that it's a pain. Like you were saying, you're writers. You just want to write. You don't want to have to worry about all of these other things that are going on. But a platform is everything because a platform is how you sell your books. If you have a huge following and high engagement and you post about a book that you've written, that audience is going to go and pre-order that book. That audience is going to go and buy that book. That audience is going to go and show other audiences everything about that book. I'm sure we've all seen the power of TikTok over the last couple of years. A random person who has 300 followers can make a video about a book that they love. It can go absolutely viral and you can see a huge boost in sales from just that moments. So having an established social media presence makes you in those moments, makes you connect with the people who are making those videos. And as you know, Bianca, because obviously you have a lot of really great relationships with bookstagrammers and influencers, those relationships really take you far. And as you become a more advanced writer or later in your career, you have those people that have your back. Like I know that Every time that you post something about your book, you've got a hundred champions behind you who are sharing in their Instagram stories and posting about it and making TikToks about it, which is just like in itself, it's, it's own sales booster.
1: Yeah. And I think for probably for things like memoir and for nonfiction, creative nonfiction, the platform's even more important. And I think that's why it's so difficult for unknown authors to publish a very successful memoir, unless you have a big story like. Uneducated or something like that, because again, that platform matters. In terms of blurbs, this is the one thing that, as a writer, I hate the most. I'd rather write twenty novels than reach out to five authors and ask them to blurb my work. It is just, even in my personal life, I am terrible at asking for help or for favors, and then to do it professionally is awful. How about if our listeners maybe don't have a huge platform, but maybe they know someone hugely influential who is able. To blurb their work. How important is that if you come in at the pitching stage and they've got like, I've got this amazing blurb from the celebrity, how important is something like that? Especially as
6: a debut author, that can be huge for you. Just because if you're trying to establish yourself and you don't necessarily have a well-known name yet, you don't have a huge following, you haven't published anything before, to be able to connect to somebody whose name is recognizable and also maybe Influential, I guess you could say, that can take you a really long way. I mean, if you even think about when you go into a bookstore and you're looking at a book that you've never heard of before, if I see that an author that I know or somebody I know and really like has said something nice about that book, I'm more inclined to pick it up and read the back of it and learn a little bit more about it. Same thing goes when you are in the stage of just putting your book out for editors to review and you're just trying to get published in the first place. If you have somebody who is recognizable vouching for your book, That can get your name a little bit higher on the list, likely, because people are like, oh, wow, if this person says something about this book, I should probably be checking it out in the same way that consumers will do that when they're shopping for books that have already gone on sale.
1: Yeah. So something to keep in mind, for those of you who want to do celebrity stalking, I think Stephanie Danler was a waitress when she gave a copy of Sweet Bitter to the head of some publishing house who came to her restaurant for lunch so you never quite know who you're going to meet and who might help you along the way so just to clear it up for us what is the difference Jordan between people in publishing houses who work in marketing and those who work in PR I know the two work closely together but they have very different jobs
6: Yes. Great question. Obviously those two teams are very aligned because ultimately they're coming together with the same goal of promoting the same book, but PR is more frontward facing and marketing is more behind the scenes, if that makes sense. So PR is pitching you for media outlets. PR is pitching you for writing essays. PR is pitching you for events. PR is going to those events with you. Marketing is all the behind the scenes work, advertising, social media, promotions like giveaways and things like that, things that you don't necessarily know who the person behind the work is. You just see like, oh, on Facebook, I'm getting this ad for this book and I'm going to click it and potentially buy it. Whereas PR is like, oh, look at this People Magazine list of reads that I need to check out this October, or I'm going to go to this event at this bookstore that's coordinated by PR. So there's a lot of crossover But PR is a little bit more of like the in-person logistics and then the contacts at the media outlets, whereas we do everything more paid and then social media oriented.
1: And when it comes to those budgets how do you decide which books are going to get more money thrown at them so is it the author who got the highest advance that's going to get the most money thrown at it Are there instances where perhaps the author doesn't get a huge advance and they decide to throw money at it because something that I want to point out to the listeners is as authors we dream of the bidding wars we dream of the million dollar book deals etc but what we often are not told is that if we get a very high advance, that could make us unviable as an author down the line if we are not earning back that advance. So, before you start getting paid royalties, you've got to earn back the money that they have paid you in that advance. Yes, if your book does shockingly, they're not coming back and demanding their money back, so you can still run off into the sunset with your bag of money. But if you are hoping to publish again, that might be difficult if you didn't earn back that money. So, in terms of how does a publisher decide which of their books that they've acquired they are really going to throw money behind? Because we'll see books coming out, five or six books coming out from the same imprint almost at the same time, but one book really has been prioritized. How does that happen? So that depends on a multitude of factors,
6: honestly. Obviously, as you said, during any given season, a big amount of books will usually go on sale. Even on the same day, multiple books from an imprint will go on sale. A lot of those factors are decided once a book is purchased and then the sales team and the marketing and publicity teams have all read and decided which books might be the priority. And again, that comes from what's happening in the world, what moments we feel like, wow, this book's really going to fit into this space or wow, this book really speaks to this moment and we need to kind of drive that forward. If there's a lot of in-house excitement for a book, like the whole sales team reads it and all the marketers read it and they're super excited about it, they might prioritize that because that's a lot of different readers with a lot of different tastes honing in on one specific book and really seeing the value there. So it honestly very much depends on the season, what books are being bought, what's happening in the world, and what budgets we have available to us in the first place. But it really changes season to season,
1: year to year. And in terms of trends, something that I've established in the last while interviewing authors that surprised me is the number of established authors who are like Deanna Rayborn, who are having their editors pitch ideas and say, I would like you to write a book about something like this, because this is having a moment right now. So how many trends come from the ground up? Like, are you guys getting feedback from booksellers who tell their sales people who then come back and report to sales and marketing? Are you looking at what books are selling when it comes to that? And how important are these trends? Because trends are cyclical. So for writers to chase a trend doesn't make sense because it takes you two years to write a book. And even that book, once you sell it after two years, will only come out in another two years time. So by that point, the whole trend is bloody well over with anyway. So, So can you speak a bit about that?
6: Definitely. So what's interesting is I had never heard of an editor or somebody else providing ideas for a writer before or saying, hey, this is trending. We should try and write a book about this. In my experience, I have always just heard of writers coming with their ideas and editors, obviously, workshopping and figuring out best ways to delve into those ideas. But those ideas have always started with the writer and then come to the editor. It's just in like the last year that I've even heard of the reverse happening where an editor Might be like, hey, this is trending. Let's try and jump on this and write a book about this. I think that that really depends on the type of writer, though. Like, obviously, if you are writing a very literary novel, you cannot really think of like a trend for a literary writer to think of. This works more in the case of like a romance novel where you're like, hey, on TikTok, this trope is. Trending, We're seeing this all the time. Maybe we can kind of dive into that and try that out. But more often than not, in my experience with traditional publishing, it's always the writer coming with the idea and the editor is workshopping that idea, not necessarily saying jump on the trend.
1: I think this perhaps started a few years ago with Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. I read an article about that and it was actually the editor who came up with that idea to turn Pride and Prejudice into zombies. And then the editor pitched it to one of their authors. And obviously the editor has to know that the author can have a super quick turnaround in terms of writing this book again, because you want to try and hop on the bandwagon when it comes to the trend and make sure that you can get that book out super, super fast. So there's that as well. In terms of for our listeners who are writing things, Jordan, and are trying to figure out if they've got enough of a hooky concept that's really going to grab the marketing team, the PR team, the editor. Are there things that you are seeing that when an editor comes to pitch a story, that certain things about that plot or about that story just completely stand out so that everybody in that meeting is like, hell yes, this sounds amazing. Like, Because we say it needs to be something different and something fresh, but it also has to be similar enough to other things that they know how to position it. So what are the things that for you in these kind of meetings really stand out and make you go, this is a book that I can stand behind and that I can get on board with?
6: So that's where trends come into play for a writer. So instead of an editor going through and analyzing a trend, it's really beneficial for you as a writer to go and see what is trending in the marketplace, what kind of books are selling, what kinds of things are going viral, and then trying to curate your own writing in a similar way that could allude to some of those trends, if that makes sense. So for me, if I'm being pitched a book and they'll say like, it's this title with this amount of flair, or it's like these three things meet each other, And the writing is incredible. That's what's going to really hook me in is like seeing those comparisons, but also seeing how this might be different than that title, how it complements that title, how it matches kind of the same energy, general type of story, but offers XYZ instead. And that's how it's unique or how it's different.
1: Have you ever been, and you don't have to give us names or title names, have you ever been in one of these meetings where the editorial team, acquisitions team turned something down and another publisher turned it into a big hit where people were like having huge regrets about it? Because it really is important, whether you have an agent, whether you have an editor, that... It's the exact right fit. It has to be the agent that 100% believes in that story. And I've had a ton of rejections from editors who've gone, like with my recent book, I had some editors reply and say, I stayed up all night to finish reading this book. I absolutely loved it, but I don't know how to sell it. And then your heart breaks as an author because you're like, how the hell could you love it and you still don't want to acquire it? And then somebody else turns that into a success. So have you ever seen that happen? I've never personally
6: seen that happen. I have seen situations where somebody does end up buying a book, but it doesn't necessarily reach a priority level by any means. And we sell it and we put good efforts behind it, but it's not the one that we're like necessarily putting a ton of energy behind. And then that book takes off unexpectedly and sells really well. And the to see the way that we all kind of restructure how we're promoting that book really changes. So I've definitely seen that. I've never seen the reverse though. I've heard stories. We all know like the classic, like Harry Potter was rejected a million times before a publisher finally took on that book, but I've never seen it myself.
1: Yeah. As writers, we need these stories because we need this petty side of ourselves so we can raise our fists at the people who said no. And we could be like, ha ha ha, look at the success I've had. And yeah, I've, think something like Where the Crawdads Sing was probably one of those books, because I think Putnam thought it was going to be a much quieter kind of book than it ended up being. And I don't think anybody could have anticipated that success. I chatted with Tara, Delia's editor, and we spoke about that, about how much she loved the book and she knew it was beautiful, etc. but was certainly not anticipating that kind of success. So, For authors out there, if you sell your book and you don't feel like they're putting a ton of money behind it, these miracles can still absolutely happen. Jordan, before we say goodbye to you, is there any advice you have for emerging writers? I'm always saying what publishers want is a good story well told. I honestly firmly believe that everything boils down to that. Forget the trends, forget everything else. I think if you as a writer are passionate about a project and you pour your heart and soul into it and you do a really good job of it, I think nine times out of 10, that's probably the best thing you can possibly do. I completely agree with that. And I think that's wonderful advice. And I would also say too,
6: just kind of alluding to everything we've discussed throughout the last 20 minutes here, is you have the internet at your disposal in a way that nobody really ever has before. You are able to put out samples of your writing. You're able to reach out to people online. You're able to pitch yourself in a TikTok video and go viral. You're able to boost your profile on Instagram. Um, you have all of these ways of kind of meeting people in a world where that's never really been possible before. So don't give up hope if it's not sticking right off the bat. Obviously, it can be very exhausting and rejection is really, really hard, especially for writers who have experienced it frequently. But there are so many situations where it just takes one story or one moment to really boost your career and get you started. And don't ever give up on the opportunities that you can make for yourself, like, go on TikTok and talk about a book that you've written and see what kind of interest comes that way because you really never know what can happen from that.
1: Yeah, and we've interviewed authors on the podcast who went out on submission with a book, got rejections from everyone, put the book in their drawer, pretty much did nothing to that book. Four years later, pitched the book again and everyone was fighting over that book. So sometimes we give up on a book and we feel heartbroken and we go, oh, well, I spent so much time on it. It's never going to see the light of day. You never know when that book will have its moment down the line. I know I said that was the last question, Jordan. I did lie. We have so many listeners who are feeling very despondent about the state of publishing because they've been seeing on Twitter how many people have been resigning from publishing, especially young people like yourselves who are very disillusioned with publishing and who are leaving and who are underpaid and overworked, etc. What is your outlook on that? Is it all doom and gloom or are things not quite so bad? It's definitely hard to see
6: some of that stuff online, of course. And I will say that obviously there are things that publishing in general needs to work on and things that need to change. But I've been in my career for just over six years now and i can say that I'm still incredibly happy with the work that I get to do, with the colleagues that I get to work with, with the authors I get to work with and the books that I get to put my hands on. I also feel optimistic about the way that publishing is changing. I think that even in just the last few years, we've seen a lot of that come to fruition. We're making more efforts to make sure that we're advancing the voices that we're publishing, the way that we're publishing them, who we're targeting, what audiences that we're trying to reach, things like that. And obviously, it's always a work in progress, but I'm grateful to feel like those steps are being taken and that we are moving forward in that way. I also will say that as a younger person in publishing, it's been an incredible experience for me just personally meeting lots of other young people like me with shared interests. It's a remarkable industry in that way where you're kind of all united together in like a shared love of books. Obviously, anytime anyone works anywhere, you have like some shared experience, but there's nothing quite like publishing where regardless of what you studied in college, regardless of where your career has taken you, you're here because you love to read. You're here because you love books. And that kind of unity just kind of creates a magical bond. And I can truthfully say that a lot of the people that I'm closest to in my life are people I've met through my job. So for that, I'm also super
1: grateful. Amazing. And I'm so grateful that my job and your job brought us together as well. So that's something I'm grateful for. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was lovely having you on the show.
6: Thank you, Bianca. It was so great chatting with you as always. One of my favorite people in the whole wide world to talk to.
1: And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.